0: Today we have part two of Lorraine's story. If you haven't heard part one, you need to go back and listen to that last week. It'll give you a great context in regards to the personality that is Lorraine. And if you're wondering why I was saying last week in the intro, she needs to turn her life into a TV series, this episode will give you an explanation as to why if you don't know Lorraine's story she's an ex-prison officer she's a mother of three and she's a wife to a special forces member she has had the most interesting life well I feel she's had a very interesting life in today's episode we hear more about the prison stories including a time when a prisoner tried to kill her all the prison stories in this episode are graphic so definitely not suitable for children and did I mention that she's five foot two very fasty I love her to bits also, we start this episode at the exact point where she's talking about the fact that she said to her husband, Todd, I want a divorce. Again, we have left out surnames in this episode for privacy reasons based on her husband's special forces service in the military. We don't want their identity out there in the big wide world, so that's why it's been left out. But she has given us permission to use their first names for both of them, so don't need to worry about that. Enjoy this episode, guys. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I did recording it. Welcome to One Moment, Please, the podcast where our guests take a moment to tell their stories of how they've overcome adversity to achieve success, and you take a moment to tune in, so bring on the inspiration.
1: So I rang him and I said, I don't want to be married to you anymore. And he was like, oh. Oh my God. And uh, he was like, oh, okay. And... um, yeah, so we separated, and he was in Townsville. I was in Perth. Um, lived the high life in Perth while I was here, and um, and then I sort of like realized that you know I I did love him. I did. I was just I was just such an impulsive person, so impulsive that I would just make these snap decisions and do it, and not really have any thought to other people's feelings. Um, so, yeah, so anyway, I worked I worked and worked in Casarina Prison, and uh, Todd finally got a posting back to Perth. To, he'd been posted to Special Forces, SASR, here at Swanbourne in Perth. And he rang me and he said, I'm coming back to Perth. And I said to him, I hope you're not doing that for me. And he was <laughs> like, uh, he was, because by then I'd already also uh, started divorce proceedings and oh um and he was like no nope, no nope, I'm doing it for myself and I was like oh okay so anyway um he came back to Perth and yeah this is this is a bit romantic he's never done think this romantic since but um <laughs> I was about to uh go to work and I was doing a was I doing night shift I can't remember anyway there was a knock at the door I was living at home with my mum and dad which was really difficult. Um, and there was a knock at the door and he'd driven all the way from Townsville to Perth in three days by himself wow, to, make sure, yeah, to make sure. Yep, to make sure. If you
0: not in Australia, that's like other sides of the country and Australia it's, is it's enormous.
1: It's a 4,500-kilometre drive and he had yeah. done it in three days. Oh. And he wanted to make sure that he got to my mum and dad's house before I went to work. And he I so I answered the front door and um and I was really surprised. I was like, Oh, oh, okay. And he stood there and he said to me, he said, I'm not divorcing you. I love you and we're just gonna have to work this out. Oh. and yeah so my heart sort of melted then and I thought yeah you're a keeper
0: <laughs>
1: oh. so I um, love
0: the story where the guy fights for the win
1: yeah you do you really do and he's done it for me like that type of thing he's done that twice now um oh. so which is really nice so yeah so we ended up getting back together and we um his mum and dad never liked me ever um and not till we've been married like twenty five years and God knows what. And um so he told his mum and dad that oh that's right, because I was going into hospital the next day, um, uh, because I had I'd suffered most of my life with endometriosis. So I'd had to go I had to go in for another operation. And he was like, I'll take you to the hospital, I'll I'll look after you and so um whilst um I was in hospital, he rang his mum and dad to say that he was back in Perth and they said well where are you and he was like well I'm staying with Lorraine because they knew that we had separated and I'm staying with Lorraine and they turned around and said why and he said because she's my wife and they went oh god yeah well she's not worth it that's that's basically what they said to him and he said well if you're going to talk about her like that because I had said to him over our marriage your mum and dad don't like me and they were quite rude to me on many occasions you know um, and, and he said, well, if you're going to be like that, he said, I, I'm not going to talk to you. She's my wife. She's always going to be my wife. And that's it. End of story. So, um, so he never spoke to his mum and dad for, wow, a, oh. a good couple of months. Love. Oh, mm. So you know, hey, listen, don't don't get overwhelmed with that because it's few and far between. <laughs> things like No, that he, and... no,
0: it's lovely. It
1: is, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, he's all right. Oh come <laughs>
0: on, that was a lovely <laughs> to turn your back on your parents because they're saying something nasty about your wife. Like that's yeah, but that's a big thing. Like
1: that's... yeah, but he used to say to me because I used to say to him all the time. You know, I'd say things to his mum and dad, and they would slyly say things to me so he couldn't hear so and then I'd say to him oh your mum said And he'd go no she's that's not what they mean or his dad to me I think
0: everyone's had that I've my my husband's had friends like that they'd be like she doesn't like me he's like no she just doesn't know you she likes you fine
1: yeah Mm -hmm. I know yeah exactly
0: (laughs) I know. Yeah, yeah,
1: exactly. And that's yeah, that's what it is. So but they he just never got it. Um because when we when I um when I left Townsville and he rang his mum and dad to tell them that we separated, uh, for our wedding present, they bought us a, a secondhand fridge. And you know, not that it was massively expensive, but a second hand fridge because we didn't have one. And uh so when he told them that we had separated and that I'd gone back to Perth, his dad's words to him were well, we better take the fridge back so that bitch doesn't get it.
0: <gasps>
1: mm. So, so do you think maybe he should have said then? Well, if you're going to talk about it like that, don't.
0: I think you should just go with the fact that he stood up for you in the end. I do. And- I do. Like, I do.
1: Okay. So, so which is which is good. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, um, yeah. He came back and and we got together and then. Um, and then, uh, you know, probably a few months later, we, by this stage, we've been married like three years or coming up three years. Um, I found out I was pregnant. And he said, I said to him, I think you should tell your mum and dad, you know, that we're going to have a baby. And he was like, oh, okay, no worries. So he actually did ring his mum and dad and said, just let you know, Lorraine's pregnant. And oh, because we have moved into a place just in, uh, like, we've moved into this house. And he'd actually said to his mum and dad, he'd moved. And because he did have like one phone call with them after um, the initial argument and um, to say that he'd moved. And if any mail had come to their house, could they forward it on to him? And um, yeah, so he said, this is our address. We've moved into this place. And they turned around to him Then, even then. And they said to him, oh, so I suppose you're paying for that. And Todd goes, it's got nothing to do with you. Who pays for what? And uh, they went, oh, yeah, because, you know, basically I was useless and a no-hoper and basically that was it, you know. And they always thought that it was all Todd, like he did everything. But I earned much more money than him in those days as well. So, um, yeah, they they could be pretty vicious when they wanted to be. So, yeah. So
0: so you went back to working at the, prison. the new prison?
1: Yeah, I did. The new one. I went back working at the new prison, um, which was an eye-opener. So... Been there about – so I ended up – I was pregnant. I had Madison and – So were you working
0: with these prisoners whilst you were pregnant?
1: No, no. So what happens is that – so when you're like me, um, you're pregnant, they take you out of the actual main population. So you work in basically admin doing other stuff. So your contact with prisoners is very, very limited, very limited because you become a hostage risk. So yeah. if something happens and they want to start writing and you're pregnant, so you know that if you'll be the first target, you would be the first target they'll come after. So females are always a high risk anyway working in male maximum prisons, um, and you know so uh, being female and being pregnant, wow, that just would it's just not the right thing to do. So
0: were there many um, violent, and we'll get into one again one later Mm -hmm. but not now Mm -hmm. but were there in general were there many violent acts towards prisoners or hostage taking and stuff like that
1: um between prisoners
0: no 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 between sorry between the with the guards
1: generally majority I always used to explain to people is being a prison officer is 90% boredom 10% excitement Because majority of the time, the prisoners just want to do their time, and they just want it. You will have those ones who will always play up, and they're always they're always put into a special unit anyway, um, because they're the ones that they're the troublemakers, and you know they're going to be troublemakers. And you know, um, so we had it's called a special handling unit. So the troublemakers were put into this area, and they were handled by majority of male prisoners, very little female prisoners. Worked in that handling unit because of the severity of the violence that they would create, you know. Mm-hmm. So, um, so you would have a special uh, group of uh, officers, main, predominantly male, who would work in those units, and they were big guys. They were big, big guys. I'm, I said, I'm a little. I'm, I'm strong. I'm really strong, but you know, and I'm fast, but and feisty, and feisty. <laughs> and I would fight, you know, tooth and nail whatever happened, but. Um, you know, you've gotta you've gotta be aware of of your limitations. You really do in those environments, you know.
0: So you're pregnant? I'm Todd's, pregnant. Uh Todd's working in the SAS now.
1: Now he's in the SAS and um you know, things are going really well for us and he's he's away a lot, like a lot all the time. So he decided that he wanted to try and uh, qualify. So in the SAS, you don't just go to the SAS. Um, you you can you can go and get posted there, but you can also try and qualify um, special forces as a trooper. So they're the people that do go in and and kill the terrorists and all that kind of stuff and do all the Secrets. Neutralize the threats. Neutralise the threats. That's right. Very good. Um, so
0: I grew up with an older brother watching lots of war films.
1: <laughs> so that's basically what he wanted to do, but he um they have to train really hard for that. I'm talking ridiculous amounts of training. Like
0: yeah. it's which is under- you can understand it because
1: it is, and it's very mentally challenging as well yeah it is it really is so because it's not only the physical side they're looking at they're looking at how you're going to handle situations because uh, you know you've got to go from zero to hero in in 10 seconds flat and it's a it's a very hard thing and the adrenaline starts pumping and all that kind of stuff so um yeah so he was training really really hard for that um i
0: think there's a bit of a misnomer that particularly that knife you know that pointy end of things in the special forces I think that people think that they're I don't know what's the term knuckle draggers or whatever but they're actually really intelligently like super intelligent people because they have to assess those situations
1: very quickly very very quickly and you know when you think about what they have to do and I think it always made me laugh because um I mean my husband's only five foot ten he's he's not massively tall or anything and you know I think the other thing is, is like friends, our civilian friends used to think that, you know, being special forces, that they were these massive, big, muscly blokes, and majority of them are not at all. Most of them would, you know, get to six foot if you're lucky.
0: Um, it's interesting. I always, no. majority, like, you kind of think of it and think, yeah, they have to be enormous because of the.
1: Yeah, and it's it's not that at all. No. I mean, if you look at people like um, Mark Donaldson, who's a VC winner, you know, um, Todd, you know, he's actually was good friends with his wife, Emma, Emma, and I'm friends with Emma as well. But, um, you know, Mark Donaldson's not a very tall bloke at all. And, yeah, he was able to, you know, do what he did um, and, you know, save lives and take down the enemy. And, you know, yeah, Ben Robert Smith, He's massive. He's like a mountain himself, you know.
0: (laughs) He's an enormous man. He's
1: an enormous man. But, you know, in saying that as well, being as big as what he is, he was a prime target. He was damn lucky that he didn't get hurt because he's so big. So, you know, those are the, you know, the contrasting sides to things. You know, you've got these guys who are just normal, everyday walk-down-the-street blokes um, who have been trained really, really well. Um, and this is the reason why
0: we're not using your surname because obviously there's privacy around. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, and that's the thing is that, you know, these guys, they you have to have, I never get this word right, anonymity. Yeah, I can't
0: say that. You know what?
1: Yeah. They have to be secret.
0: Yeah. I always get
1: stuck on. Brewery, brewery. I I can do brewery. (laughs) It's got alcohol in it. I can do brewery any day. No worries. I don't know why I get my tongue twisted. And then I mean, I can never do that word. But they have
0: to work in the shadows.
1: They do, yeah, they do, because um, you know, it's some people are, and that's the weird thing is that I'm not very good with faces. Um, I'm good with names but I'm not very good with faces. So I, I look at people and I and they go, oh, it's you. And I go, oh, I don't know who you are. And I have. I've met them three times and I'm like, oh, God, where, you know, some people are really good with faces, especially when you're talking about terrorists and, you know, bad people and all that type of thing. They study some of these guys for you know, Weeks, yeah, exactly. Months, years, sometimes, you know. So, yeah, so they do stay in the background with their work. So, so he was working really hard with that, and he he went off and did what they call uh, what they call selection course. And he actually, um, I, I just had Madison, and she was only probably about three months old. Um, and, uh, he'd gone off to do the selection course and he pulled himself off. He got injured. He hurt his back and, um, he couldn't feel his feet for like six weeks mm. because they carry so much weight and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So he, uh, he was really disappointed in that. And then he tried it one more time and he was just like, nah, this is, this is not for me. And the other thing is, is Todd's a family man. So he he also saw what the other guys were missing out on, like their kids growing up and certain things. So so he, st- he really desperately wanted to stay Special Forces because he loved that kind of work. So he was fortunate enough to be able to create a niche for himself in Special Forces, in signals, in communication, and, um, and that's his primary work um, that he did. So as we are all aware 9/11 happened and mm. um i by then i had 3 little kids um and so 9/11 happened and then todd had gone away um january of 2002 and uh oh uh, yeah so 9/11 happened what 2000 yeah 2000 yeah 2000 yeah. 2000- yeah. I'm 2001. i do, yeah, two thousand and one or something like that and or, or Not bad. We should know that we should line, know so that, shouldn't eight. we? Know the nine eleven, just the uh, year. Yeah, so um so so obviously doing what they were doing, a lot of the guys were deployed, you know, it was not a very nice time, um, that was happening and uh I really didn't think that Todd would go anywhere so in uh, in the january um he went away because they had the um the g summit here in queensland actually and so that and the queen was coming to this one so um prior to her coming they all came they came over here they had to do their training to make sure no one killed the queen and all the you know dignitaries and that that turned that turned up and so mm-hmm. he was here for three months and um so he'd been here yes yeah, yeah, um 3 months and he came home i said so that was in the january so he came home and i so i hadn't seen him for 3 months he walked in the door on the tuesday night uh he got up for work wednesday morning um he was at work by 7 he rang me at 8 and said to me i'm going away um and I said where are you going and he said I'm going overseas he couldn't tell me anything and I was like oh mm. okay I said when are you going and he goes Friday so this was on the Wednesday morning and um I said to him oh because the kids hadn't seen him either so he came home Tuesday night they were already in bed he'd got up for work and gone to work by the time they got out of bed so they hadn't seen him so I was I was like oh okay how uh, Maddie was, uh, I want to say. So it was 2000,
0: 2001. She was eight. Like she was
1: eight. Yeah. She was eight at the time. She was eight, Ethan was six, and Mackenzie was four. Wow. Um, so uh, I said to him, oh, he goes, I'm leaving Friday. And I said, oh, okay, so, so I'm going to come back home. I'm going to pack my stuff. And um, he said, oh, I also need to bring some legal documents home. I ha- I have to sign over all my stuff to you, um, power of attorney, blah, blah, blah. And he and I said, Oh, okay, no worries. This yeah, we can get that done. Then he rings me fifteen minutes later and said to me, So you gotta remember I'd only seen him for a couple of hours. Literally. He we he came home that night, seen him for a couple of hours, we went to bed, he got up, he went to work, um, you know, so that that was it. And I said and I hadn't seen him three months prior to that. So, um so, yeah, so I, he ring me and he goes, uh, plans have changed. I'm going um, on tomorrow. And I said, what? He goes, I'm leaving tomorrow. And I said, you can't, you know, you've not been home. You've barely been home. And he said, I'm leaving tomorrow. I need you to do blah, blah, A, B, C and D. He said, I'll be home at lunchtime. He said, can you go and get the kids from school? Um, so I was like, oh, Okay. And he said, then he said, I also need you to ring my mum and dad because um, I want to see them before I go. And I knew it was pretty serious by then. I was like, oh, okay, no worries. And and he said, or oh, maybe you want to call your mum and dad and get them to come over as well. And I was like, oh god, that's even worse. If you're saying my mum and dad as well, you know. <laughs> um, yeah. So he came home on the Wednesday. Um, at, I think it was about one o'clock, and he brought all this stuff home with him. And we had to, I had to tick it off, and he had to go through it methodically, make sure it was all there, blah, 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 all the rest of it. And then um, I, I went and got the kids from school. I got them all, other than Mackenzie, because she wasn't at school. Um, I went and got Maddie and Ethan, I had to pull them out of school, and I had to explain to them that Daddy was going away for we didn't know how long. We really had no idea. You know, remember they hadn't even seen him for three months prior to that as well. So even though he, mm. physically he'd been home, they they knew that dad had come home the night before, but they were asleep, and mm. dad had already gone to work by the time they got up. So they hadn't seen him in three months. So I I said, you know, daddy's got to go away again. And Maddie was old enough to understand, and she was like, well, "Where's he going?" And I said, "Unfortunately, he's got to go." you know and help you know get some bad guys basically Mm. because kids don't understand what war is or anything like that and um and Ethan just thought oh it's great I do not have to go to school he didn't really (laughs) understand anything and Mackenzie of course didn't understand at all she was four so so my mum and dad turned up his mum and dad turned up uh we had to sign all these legal documents and and everything and everything was signed over to me and the next day, um, I dropped the kids off at my mum and dad's and um, they said goodbye to their dad. So that he, he spent all that time. He, he went back to work that afternoon, dropped all the stuff off, came back. We spent all that time with his mum and dad, my mum and dad and the kids. And then the next morning, we dropped the kids off at my mum and dad's and I drove him to the airport. And so technically, I'd only seen my husband for 36 hours in three months. And then and then he left, and he jumped on a plane, and I didn't see any, see him again for another six months.
0: How hard is that for the kids though? Because you've got three kids, and they two of them don't understand.
1: Yeah, they're saying where's daddy? It's I think that I think it was a blessing in disguise, really, that they didn't understand because kids don't have a definition on time, so. Yeah. That was a good thing. Maddie was old enough to understand that her dad was in the army and that she, you know, that he'd gone. Sometimes
0: he has to go away. Yeah,
1: So and yeah. and he'd and he been away a lot. So, you know, you got to understand, you know, he'd been away a lot prior to that as well. So they were used to dad just popping in and popping out, you know. It was just one of those things, you know, that they're used to. And they used were used to, like, him literally going to work and not coming home sometimes for, you know, three or four weeks. And then he'd just turn back up again. It was, that was just the norm for us, you know.
0: So it's a pretty weird life. And he oh, home. "Oh, that's home. Yeah,
1: it's a very strange life. So you know, dealing with that, I think the, the toughest thing for me when he went um, was not knowing whether he would come back. You know, because you just you, – we didn't know. I mean, it was so aggressive. It happened. You know, the world was going crazy because of all this terrorism and stuff like that. So, you know, my biggest fear was that – well, I used to say every day was a good day if no one knocked on my door. That's how I looked at it. That. That, so wow, that's a pretty – um. It was a pretty hardcore way to go, but it yeah. was my way of dealing with things, you know. So I had to become a mum, a dad. Um, I had to, you know – everything to do with the house it was all my responsibility the kids were sick I mean fortunately I was only working part-time at that stage so I was still able to keep my you know my finger in the pine house with sanity outside of the house Um, but you know when you've got three kids and you know if one of them gets sick all get sick they don't it's not just one that gets sick they all get this knock-on effect and and stuff like that so that was really, really tough for me. Like really tough. And and you, know, I I have to admit, you know, I drank a lot in that six months. A lot, because it was my coping mechanism. It was, you know, and people would say to me, you know, how are you? And I would go, great. But really, I wasn't. I wasn't. I wasn't good at all. I was just. I was barely getting by. You know. But do the
0: women rally? Like do the wives? Um of the soldiers sort of rally around each other and be like, okay, let's, or is that just something that you see in the movies?
1: Um, you know what? We didn't live um, in army, uh, in, so a lot of them have villages that uh, annex off the barracks. You know, there's certain areas that will annex off barracks. So, and lots of families live there, you know, especially if they've got no other family around for support. So they move into the defence housing. One, it's cheaper to live. Um and two, it's, you know, it, it is for support, really. Um, so, but we didn't do that. Because we're Perth people, we actually bought our own house. So we didn't live near the barracks. We, you know, um, we didn't, because oh, I had my family here. Todd's family lived, well, in Perth, I should say. You know, Todd's family's in Perth. My family's in Perth. So we had that family support type thing. So, And we bought our own house. We always wanted to have our own home. So... Um so I didn't have that connection that a lot of army wives do. Um and I chose not to have that connection. Being in the army myself, I, I used to get a lot of flack from army wives because if you worked with their husbands, a lot of them would believe that you're having an affair with their husband. All the time. Mm. They'd go, Oh girl, you're you're you know, you're staring at my husband, you know, you and I just think, yeah, he's definitely not my type, you know. And they, you know, so they always had this dislike for females in the army, the army wives, because they felt threatened, you know, because you'd have to work with their husbands and go away with their husbands and, you know, you were away with their husbands sometimes, you know, five or six days, running probably even four or five weeks, you know. You were away in the same vicinity as them, you know, and in their head it's like, well, is he going to have sex with her? Is he going to, you know, that's the way they Mm. thought. And I didn't like that because I had been the target of some of those things and um you know it was very unfair on females in the army because and don't get me wrong it happened it did happen but um so I chose to you know to just have as normal life as possible and but I I mean by that stage as well when that happened I I'd finished at the prison so I um in 1990, okay, so I have to go back to one part. When I was working in Kalgoorlie Prison, um, there was a a prisoner who um, was an Indigenous prisoner, and he was gay, and um, he he got picked on by one of the prison officers. And I don't believe in um, I don't I don't like bullies. I really don't, you know. And you know this one prison officer bullied this this prisoner because he was gay and you know it wasn't fair so when the prisoner made a complaint about the prison officer I was interviewed and they asked me whether what the prisoner was saying was true and I said yes it was because he made really derogatory comments and you know really had to go at this prisoner and so I was disliked a lot because you just didn't job on your fellow prison prison officers you know you just didn't do that But in those days as well, it was very much um, uh, no matter what, you know, even if the prison officer was wrong, you just didn't, you didn't, you didn't job them in. You didn't go against the grain, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'm not like that. If it's it's wrong, it's wrong, you know, Um, and uh, so... So I ended up being disliked by not all the prison officers, but some of the prison officers. And this other prison officer, he was an arsehole. He really, really was, you know. He had that power hungry type attitude and mm. treated treated prisoners like dirt, you know, terrible. Um so the union got involved and that's how I actually ended up going to Kazarina because um they they were like you Know it's getting a sticky situation. I said, Well, I don't have a problem with it. I said, He's the only one that has a problem with it, you know. And um, and I said, Because what he did was wrong, and uh, they were like, Oh, okay, no worries. And then it, you know, it was like, Well, is opening up, do you want to go and help? And we wanted to go back to Perth anyway, so I said, Yeah, sure, no worries, we'll go. We didn't like Kalgoorlie as in a town, so um, because it's very clicky. Um, so anyway, back to the story, so uh, This, I was at uh, Casparina Prison and I was working with the vulnerable and disturbed prisoners and also the pedophiles Um, and I worked in the hospital. So prisoners who had HIV, who, you know, were mentally ill, who had addictions, the pedophiles had their own... um, uh, wing because they were separated from the general population because they used to be attacked all the time. Um, and that's where they did their, um, what they say, reprogramming. don't think it ever really worked. Um, and so I was working in the hospital and the prisoner that I had stuck up for at Kalgoorlie Prison happened to come into Kazarina Prison. He had been um, brought into the prison. He'd just been charged with... Um, Rape of an eighty-year-old woman, oh, and not only.
0: How was that? Was that when he was out, or did he no, get released? And then he, re- he was
1: released. He was released. He was re- and reoffended. And reoffended. And the worst part was, is that he was HIV positive. So he, um, oh, that poor. Boy. I know it's it's horrible, isn't it? So um, he, um, so he had to be segregated in the hospital because back then that you know, was 90, 90, no, 95, 96. Yeah,
0: it would have been. So the treatments aren't as good as what they are No, no,
1: exactly. And also people, because he, because he, um, because there's a law in WA, so if you're a known HIV person and you have not told one, he raped someone, but if you haven't told the partner that you're going to have sex with that you have HIV, that is classed as an offence. So because it, you can die, you, it's, it's you're, it, you know, it's it's basically and I, murder. Th-
0: and I think back then as well because the medications weren't as mm. as good, it was, a de- it, I mean, you know, it's not so long after the 80s, it was a death
1: sentence. Exactly. It was still, well, you know, still, you know, very, oh, gosh, HIV. I mean now no one, it's like coronavirus, isn't it? Everybody can get it and, you know, there's so much now i mean we've come so far but also he was he was very volatile as well he was a really volatile prisoner um and so he he was in the hospital so he was segregated he was um he wasn't the only one i have to admit though we had probably three or four prisoners who were hiv positive positive. um so he had to be segregated in a particular wing so they were lucky they had these really nice rooms they had you know they had the best of everything they were yes they were segregated from the main population but they still had 30 other prisoners that they could interact with in the yard and you know nothing stopped them from it was just main population and also he was a really um well known he he was a prostitute as well a male prostitute so within the prison outside as well so okay. um and that's when the law came in with hivs so that you had to let all your partners know that you were hiv positive so and he didn't care. He didn't care. He, he If you're HIV positive, you had to use protection as well. And he refused. So he, he was going out having sex, knowing he was HIV positive, and he was not using protection. So, so he's a not a very nice person. No, not a very nice person. So anyway, I was working in the, in the hospital there, and I'd been working there wow, probably about twelve months um and he he caused me a lot of problems over that period of time we got into a few scuffles over that period of time and then uh one day um he it's like a child really he had a tantrum and uh threatened to kill himself and I was like okay whatever you know because you don't always take those threats seriously because half the time they don't do anything anyway and um so i was in the control room or the office area and um and because i i refused something can't even remember what it was and uh i uh one of the other prisoners in that particular wing had come down and said oh boss boss you know blah 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 he's just um carved himself up and there's blood everywhere and rah 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 so I pressed the emergency button, so we raced down there, and he was standing there with a um, uh, a blade, and because they have them, it's not it's not uncommon for them to have razors and things, you know, they have to shave and mm. the rest of it. And he had slashed his wrist, not very good, I have to admit. He was pretty pathetic at that, and. Um, <laughs> So, because you do. Oh, look! After you've worked in that environment, you, when people go, "Oh, I'm going to kill myself," you and I used to say to prisoners "If you're going to do it, make sure you do a really good job." And I used to actually say, to them up this way, not across, up." You know, Lor- Lorraine. <laughs> because you knew when they when ninety nine percent of the time, if they were telling you they're going to kill themselves, they never would. It's all about attention. It's, it, it's tantrum chucking, you know, and if you gave in every time that they would do that, honestly, you just might as well give up your job. You know, they they overrun the prison type thing. So you just, and, you you know, you get very good at picking at whether they were serious or not, you know, you really would. Um, so as we went up there, there was blood everywhere and um, we got into a scuffle. Because I had to try and restrain him, and he tried to stick his bloody because um, he cut his so what he'd done he slid his wrist across a crossways. It wasn't a very deep one but you know the fine arteries the blood comes out a lot and you know it's yeah. and he cut his pulse on his thumb because that comes out a real lot and um, and that's what he'd done so you know there was there was no life threatening situation that he was going to die anytime soon and. Um, yeah, and he tried to – so we – and we, I tried to coax him out and uh I was waiting for backup as well because he had this blade and I said to him, you know, you need to put it down. Anyway, we ended up getting into this – he put the blade down, we ended up getting into the scuffle and he tried to stick his blood into my mouth, like tried to infect me with his HIV, HIV. Blade. Yeah, So – I never thought anything of it other than I go and you know clean myself up, I go and have uh wash my mouth out, you know, all the stuff you have to do, and then go and have HIV tests for the next three months. Um I was I was really lucky. Um I, I, I it didn't get you know, I didn't get infected. Um however he then he then targeted me. Everything that was done, it was targeted at me, like he would be fantastic for any other officer that was on duty. But as soon as I came on duty, he would play his face up. Um, So I said, we'd been into many a scuffles by this stage. And um, yeah, so he tried on several times to try and kill me. And um, so I left left the, um, the hospital and went and worked in mainstream and, I was working one day and my boss had said to me, She said, Oh, you need to go and do a muster. Now, a muster is where you count the prisoners, make sure no one's escaped, run off, done whatever, you know, and they all have to be accounted for. And um, I literally had this panic attack. Now, you gotta remember, I've been doing this job for seven years. So it wasn't, I've been in other many situations that were quite frightening. Um, mm. But I physically could not move to go and count these prisoners who were standing by their door. It it just it just hit me. This panic attack just hit me like a ton of bricks. I've never had one um, since, but it was just like someone had paralysed me completely. From terrifying, ter- absolutely terrifying. I was so terrified to do a job that I'd been doing for seven years, um, and. I remember saying to my partner, because you always have partners as well, you know, you weren't by yourself. You'd be stupid if you were by yourself. Um, And I said to my partner at the time, Terry, I said to him, "Um, I'm sorry, I I just can't do this. And he sort of looked at me and he was like, are you okay? And I literally said to him, no, I am not. And he was like, oh, okay, no worries, no no worries. Um, I said, I'll stand here. But I cannot I cannot physically walk up there. And he was like, Oh, okay. So he did it. I stood there, um and he did it. And um I literally, once we'd finished, they'd gone back for um lockdown, and I walked into my boss's office and I said to her, I'm gonna have to go home. And she said, Why? And I said, I don't know. I don't know what's wrong with me. And I literally she said, okay, no worries, we'll get a replacement. So you have to have the right numbers. And she got a replacement. She walked me down to the front gate. I I booked off and uh, I, I actually said to them, I think I'm coming down with something. And they went, yep, yep, no worries, no problem. And I remember getting home. I drove home. I got home and um, Maddie and uh, Ethan were in daycare then. and. Um, I remember driving home and got home and I thought, I'm going to have a shower. I'm going to feel so much better once I've had a shower. And I stood in the shower and I'm standing there and I'm washing my hair and my hair was falling out in big clumps, massive clumps. And I, I couldn't understand what was going on. I was like, what the hell is going on? And I remember Todd coming home and, um, He uh, he walked in and he was like, what are are you doing? And I stood there and I was crying and I said to him, my hair's falling out. Look, look what's happening to my hair. And I had masses of clumps of my own hair and had these bald patches on my head. Um, And he was like, oh, I think I need to take you to the doctors. And I said, "I, I think I'm coming down with something. Still hadn't registered what was going on. And um, I walked into the doctors and and I told her what happened. I said, you know, this is what's happened and I don't know why and I'm not sure what's going on. <laughs> I said to her, I think I've got a disease. That's what I thought I had. And she said, oh, and she said, you, you're a prison officer, aren't you? And I said, yes, I am. And she said, has anything happened to you over the past, you know, six months or whatever? And I was like, oh, nothing unusual, you know. Been try- Someone tried to kill me a couple of times, and <laughs>
0: just just throw it and out that's, there. And that's, no big deal. Yeah,
1: and that's how you 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 deal with those things. It's it's like as if it's not a big deal. However, my brain wasn't telling me that. My body wasn't telling me that. My brain and my body had was shutting down. They were shutting down because of the trauma and the stress, the post-traumatic stress that I had been not realising that I'd been dealing with with this particular prisoner, you know. Um and um yeah and then my world just came crashing down. My my whole world came crashing down within wow, within probably thirty six hours, I was literally an absolute mess. I couldn't I couldn't even look after my own kids. Um, it's lucky that God wasn't um Yeah, a- yeah at that stage well I think the thing was is that which was really hard to take as well is that Todd didn't understand because he he we didn't talk about my job because he didn't like the fact that I you were in danger I was yeah I was always always in that possible danger you know so and you know him being a very strong-minded person himself he um it was very hard for him to understand and and in this time as well he hadn't been in a situation himself at that point where um it could have been life or death so, so this is
0: this is pre this him going, is pre him the- going
1: away. this is way this is you know 4 years pre him going away so he yeah. found it very very hard to deal with me being who is a very strong person who I knew exactly what I've always wanted to do. Um, I'm very capable, all those type of things, being this ball of mess, absolute and th- mess.
0: But, and I think also, I don't know, I'm speaking in a wide brush, you know, painting wide brush here, but I think particularly when you have personalities like Todd, which are in the army and, and, and I think most husbands want to protect their wife so to then have your wife in a daily situation where they're confronted with potential violence
1: towards her I think that's, that's very thing. hard to do and that's the thing is that because I um, I am a strong person and I won't let anybody pull me around so he he initially like he was just like Oh, you'll be fine, you know. They should be worried about you, <laughs> not you worried about them type thing, you know.
0: It doesn't matter you're five foot two,
1: look at Yeah, and up. that's what he said. He said your height has never ever stopped you from doing anything, you know. And it's true, <laughs> I'm I am feisty and I'm very strong. Um, but you know, I didn't realise the mental impact that these situations that had been put up on me by a prisoner had because you know, if you work in a prison, you want to know that your partner that you're working with is stable and that they are able to back you up when the shit hits the fan. because, as I said, you, in no situations, you literally can go from nothing to to extreme violence in seconds. And I'm mm. talking extreme violence, you know. I mean, I was Could you feel
0: it? Could you feel the. The, the tension? The yeah. You do, yeah. The, yeah. You
1: do. And, you, and you're always. And the one clever thing is um, in a prison as well is that you will always find that there's one prisoner who will tell you what's going on. You'll always have that rat. Oh, that's- so you you have you have information, you will always have information of stuff that's happening, you know, um so when things are happening in the prison, the general population have no idea what's going on because the least amount of people that know what's going on, the better because the the element of surprise is always the best way to go, you know, um so but if you have got prisoners who have gripes against particular officers or particular prisoners and something's going to happen. You are always gonna get wind of it in at some at some point I mean it might only be ten minutes before the actual incident or whatever, but you are still gonna know um you know that something's gonna go down and it's gonna go down quickly so why
0: why are there always the- is it just because they're trying to ingratiate themselves with the exactly yeah
1: exactly so what happens is that you'll find that um you know with the ones that are willing to you know obviously rat out on the you know fellow prisoners and stuff like that you know they're generally the ones who have something to gain from it you know whether that be um they're trying to get a job in another area or whether you know up for parole whatever it is you know so there's always going to be a gain for them they they never do it you know just for the good will of it (laughs) it never ever happens but you know you always find that there's something you know they're going to give you something but they want something in return so you know whether that will be um you know extra they want their tv taken out of their property you know but it's been rejected because of whatever reason um and you go okay Okay, I'll see what I can do. You know, and it's not—it it is that game. It, it does get played, so um, you know. So those. So your hair's
0: mm-hmm. so your hair's falling mm-hmm. out. Todd's Todd's going. I don't understand how to deal with this. Exactly. So um, you're saying I don't know what's going. I'm on. not.
1: I didn't know what was going on. So my doctor actually said to me, she said, "I think you are suffering from PTSD, and um, you need to go and see." Uh, a psychologist a psychiatrist and a psychologist no it's like oh, I'm not crazy <laughs> dare you? I'm not crazy and um she was like no no you're not crazy she said but obviously there's trauma there and it's affecting you physically and mentally it's affecting you and um and I did and it was through a really really good psychologist that I went to see that um Bought all this, you know, things that I'd buried in, you know, that had happened to me. Mm. Um, bought it all forward and said, so, which was very traumatizing in itself because you bury, you just don't think about the consequences. Work it though, exactly. Right? Yeah. So uh, she was amazing. Her name was Alex, and um, so I did a lot of lot of um, sessions with her, and um, I ended up suing the uh, justice department for um basically it was just um duty of care because mm. they knew they had information that this prisoner was targeting me. He'd attacked me a couple of times. He I'd written got so many charges against him because of his behaviour and stuff. And um they didn't do anything. They they just didn't do it. They didn't even like even when um like it was it was happening, the best thing well what they should have done was Removed me from the hospital into another area, and then he also should have been shut down and said, yeah, "Okay, this is," and they would have charged, should have charged him and blah 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 and and all the rest of it, but they didn't because he was suing the Ministry of or the Justice Department himself, or Department of Justice, I should say. He was suing them himself because he he had been segregated, he was HIV positive, he was Indigenous. And it was all about this racism, you know, and all that kind of stuff. So they didn't want to rock the boat with him. So they were letting him get away with blue murder. So, um, and then all this happened to me. And um so he, um yeah, so I sued them and I was successful. And mm-hmm. um so that I never returned to the prison after that. Never ever. I never I've never stepped foot back into prison since then. And that was Fair enough in, too. I
0: mean that was pretty
1: Yeah, it was pretty full on. So it was in um I settled with them in ninety seven, mid ninety-seven. Mid-97, and I, I'd also found out I was pregnant with Mackenzie. Um and um yeah, and then just yeah, just uh that was that was the end of my career. I loved my job though, up until that point, up until that particular thing that happened to me. Um I loved it I loved doing that work I enjoyed the work I my my day was never the same we had oh god the things that I saw in that prison is just would blow your mind what and I had intended to stay at that job I hadn't I had no intention up until that you know to leave I liked it mm. it was interesting it was different it was you know um
0: I think that's I think that was is very hard like I I could never do that job, and I have full respect for people that want to do that job. And to hear someone say that they enjoyed it to me is just like how how could you enjoy uh, dealing with people yeah. and that tension all the time and that atmosphere and that the and um, some
1: horrific things happened while I worked there. I mean, um, you know, and you know, as I mentioned, you know, you you generally work with partners. You don't leave, you know a person behind basically you you stay together you it's always the safest to be with someone else you don't do it by yourself because that's just asking for trouble it really is because you just don't know what mind a prisoner is in so he could have had a bad phone call from his girlfriend and you're the first person that walks by and he's going well I'll just beat the shit out of her you know or I'll rape her or you know those type of things so you have to be very very aware all the time. You always have to be on your guard. So, there was a situation um, in what they call um, uh, self-care. So, self-care is for prisoners who—it's probably not called that now—but we call it um, self-care—is prisoners who are doing five years or more, and their crimes were quite horrific. Like they were generally your murderers, your um, rapists—you know, people who are doing long-term stints, more than five years. And, and probably more than 10, majority of them, and it was a self-care unit. So they had more in there. so in their cells they would have a shower and a toilet and their bed and they were allowed to have their TVs and, you know, um, there was only 10 uh, prisoners in each wing. So it was very small, like it was, it was a privilege to be there. So you had to be on your best behaviour. You had to always go to work. You had to have a job, you know, all those type of things. So it was like you're getting rewarded for being a good prisoner and that's what your reward is, that you get to have your own shower in your own cell, you know, and your own toilet. You didn't have to share where the other general population, they had to share, a you know, a communal shower, toilet, you know, block and stuff like that so mm. so in this self-care unit um you know it was it was it was a privilege to be there for the prisoners and prisoners worked hard to get there because you know that's that's what they did so this one particular day this particular prison officer she she was a senior officer so she was the boss of the the unit and um it was lunchtime so lunchtime is a lockdown time so at lunchtime in, in prison the prisons get locked down for one hour so you guys can go off and have your lunch, basically. And so, if you've got prisoners in in the in your wings or your unit, you lock them down for one hour. You go off and have your lunch, and then you come back and you let them go, you know, and you unlock. And so, she was a senior officer in the self care unit, and her partner, he uh, had said to her, "I, oh, um, you know, let's lock down. We, we we'll go off and go and get lunch." And there was this particular prisoner who was. He was violent, really violent, and had really, really bad criminal record um, for rape and uh, had he murdered by then? I can't remember. Anyway, um, I love how you just like, oh, (laughs) I can't remember. (laughs) Yeah, well, you just, you just because majority of them have got a long, extensive criminal record. They are just, they most of them started when they were ten, you know, Um, and. yeah. So, um, anyway, this particular um, day, she the the prisoner who cleaned the office. He, as said, he he got the duty of cleaning the office, and he was running behind. And so she had said to her partner, "No, you go off ahead and have lunch. I will wait for him to finish.
0: Uh-huh. Oh no! And
1: when he's finished, I will." I will lock him up and I will come down. And And this other officer said, no, 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 I'll wait, I'll wait. And she was like, no, because that will put us behind. Anyway, he undenied and in it, he'll have to pay for this for the rest of his life because he, it will be on his conscience. But anyway, he did, he left. Anyway, when he left, the prisoner got hold of her um dragged her into the toilet in the offices where we officers you know had toilet bathroom and severely raped her severely raped her mm-hmm. in every orifice that you could probably think of and oh. severely bashed her like bad really really bad and it was only it was handled so terribly at the time and it was only because her offsider felt really uncomfortable and he went back and when he went back the prisoner was standing there and he had her and he was like I'm I'm not gonna uh so by then alarms were hit people came running and um she was pretty much out cold in the cubicle and um he uh he was like i'm only going to be you either shoot me which is not the ideal way to go um or i'll i'm just you i walk out with the superintendent that's the only way i was going to give my. he was going to give himself up so the superintendent instead of shooting him which i would have um <laughs> he went and he got him and he walked him to um as i mentioned before special handling unit where the real rough ones went and he walked him into there, and unfortunately she she i said she was she was lucky to be alive so they they uh she she got taken to hospital and um and she was yeah she yeah she was never the same again. She stayed as a prison oh. officer, but she didn't stay as a prison officer in prison if you know what I mean she worked admin she and, yeah yeah um she I mean she had oh, broken jaws crazy. broken nose you know just yeah pretty horrific and
0: and were you working there at this time yeah and
1: but I wasn't I wasn't um I wasn't on that particular shift so
0: no but you were still yeah employed oh yeah
1: yeah it, it happened I think I actually was doing the the um that happened during the day and I was doing the night shift on the night time, or yeah. So just the
0: stress of that—I don't know how you just dealt with walking into that place every day with the stress.
1: It is, it, and that's the thing is that you—you know—you there is that that stress level. You know, um, another incident. Um, and I, I, I don't know. I just got lucky on lots of stuff. You know. Um, because I knew there were several times that I had been already warned that I had been, I've been um, a target. Um, And, um, and yeah, so, you know, my boss was always like, you know, whoever my boss was, was like, okay, we've received this information. This is what they're going to try and do. And, um, and I'd be like, okay, whatever, you know. And so I, I was always very aware of, you know, of what was on going on around me and, um, you know, there was a couple of situations where I thought, oh, man, I'm not going to get out of this. Um, and I managed to, you know, I do have the gift of the gab. So, you know, I was lucky enough to get away.
0: Did other prisoners ever come to your aid? Like if they saw that you were being threatened yeah. or saw that you're in danger, did they ever say, hang on a minute, Lorraine's like she's a, one of the good officers, I'm not gonna let yeah, her get in? Yeah,
1: it was quite funny because in. um so when I when I first started in the prison, I was doing a probation like a two week probation at the what we call the remand center. So that's where prisoners are held prior to going to court and being sentenced and, you know, but because their crimes were probably whatever it was, they weren't being released, they had to stay in jail. So I remember going there and I was in the, um, what we call the yard, where the prisoners just sat and had smokes and talked and walked and all the rest of it. And this prisoner walked straight up to me and he was like, Lorraine, how are you? And I looked at him and I was like, Jeff, what are you doing here? And it was a guy that I was in the Army Reserve with and oh my god I know and I was like wow okay um yeah
0: you're in a maximum security prison what did you do to get here
1: well that's what I said I said uh what are you doing here and we we, like we had only met a couple of times with Army reserve you know we weren't best buddies or anything like that but we knew each other you know and um (laughs) he said to me I was like what are you doing here I said yeah unfortunately you have to call me boss or miss or you know and he's oh yeah 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 no worries no worries. really really nice guy really nice guy and I said uh what are you doing here and he goes yeah I killed a guy and I went oh okay he goes uh I love
0: how he just said it so nonchalantly he, he did, as well he, like oh, yeah. he did.
1: he said uh he goes yeah he said he was a drug dealer in the in the, um uh suburb and he goes, and no, I was sick of all these young kids, you know, getting stuck into these drugs and that and he said, No one was doing anything about it. Said, so I went and shot him. <laughs> I was just like, Nice, you know, <laughs> what do you say? Oh my god. And he, he he admitted to his crime, he he wasn't backing down, he wasn't you know, he was like, I did it, Yep, I did do it. Not not complete yet. ownership. Baby. <laughs> And he goes, and if that's what I have to pay, he said, to get a scumbag off the streets doing what he's doing. Well, and I was like, okay, fair enough. You know, not the right way to go, but understand. And um, and so I was at Kazarina Prison this one and I was working in this self-care unit And this particular prison. He was a big guy. This guy was huge. He could have crushed me in a second and I knew that.
0: Who the ex-reservist guy? No, no,
1: this other guy. So I was at Kaz Uh So he, Jeff had been sentenced. He got, went to Casarina, So because he was a life-termer, you know. He got life and blah, blah, blah. And um, and Jeff was in, in the self-care unit because he was, a, he was a model prisoner. He was fantastic. You know, he did not have – not from
0: shooting a drug dealer, had shooting a drug record. He had
1: a clean record. Never had another – anything before that, never. It was really weird, just really – something just snapped and he just went – that's it i'm doing it you know so he was in the self-care unit he'd been sentenced so he'd got 20 years and uh i was standing there in at the front it was just before lock up they usually got locked up at six o'clock or six thirty. and um this one particular prisoner he was in for murder as well and but he he had a few issues um i'll call him ivan actually that was his name it was ivan um and he was a big boy, and uh he I had refused something from me for him or whatever and I was standing out in the yard, and I'm having a cigarette, you know um and I was talking to jeff i happened to be talking to Jeff, and he came out and he came barreling at me, and I literally stood there, and I thought. Fuck, I'm going to die. I'm sorry, I just swore. I do apologize. But that's exactly how I thought. I think
0: the moment, you know, warranted. Yeah, the,
1: sorry about that. The, yeah, but that's how absolutely. I thought at the time. And I thought, okay, yeah. I'm, I'm gone. gone. Yeah, my days are yeah. Right, yeah. Because as I said, I'm five foot two. And um, anyway, he came barreling at me and he was going off big time. Absolutely big time. He he came up to me. So he, oh, he's tall, I'm sure. He's literally bending down to me and our faces were literally inches apart and he's screaming into my face, screaming at me, telling me what I'm a F and C and F and whatever and rah, 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 rah. Telling you right. I thought. He was, yeah, he was big. Yeah, reserved, I think, maybe. No. Um, <laughs> and... Jeff was saying he he knew that this this was going to escalate quite quickly if something wasn't done so he actually put himself between me and this prisoner oh and he said to this guy now this guy could have also really got stuck into Jeff as well you know which was not a good thing and you know he was like get out of my way and he was like no he goes you don't talk to her like that you know you need to calm down else you're going to end up in solitary and this is not going to be pretty. He said, you're not going to do anything. And he sort of like took a step back and, you know, and I was very grateful for him doing that. I really was because, it as I said, it could have gone really, really horrible really, really quickly. No. Um I don't, what were you doing? Were you were you yelling back no, at him, no, or were you no. trying to defuse the diffuse the situation? I just stood there. I just let him scream and yell at me. Um, and when he'd stop, I know, and I'd, I said to him, "Are you finished?" And he then he'd go again, <laughs> and you know. <laughs> but luckily, during that time between like Jeff standing in front of me and and this other prisoner Ivan um, going off at me. My senior officer, um, Neil, lovely, lovely bloke. He'd heard the commotion. He came out because you press a buzzer and, like, you, you've you got alarms and they'll go off, you know. So,
0: so you've got one on your person at all times? All times,
1: yeah. So, yeah, um, yeah so you've got, you've got uh, like a, I don't know, I don't know, security alarm, I suppose you call them. Um, yeah, so he – he and, and we were right at the front of the office, so he couldn't have missed it anyway. So he was – you know, all happens very, very quickly in there as well. You've got to remember, you know, some of these people have like two, three days to get themselves worked up and get to this level yeah. of just complete um,
0: anger. And there's not a lot of other – I would imagine there's not a lot of other stimulus in there. So no. So they, I, I, they just – you know when you think about something and it just sort of starts your blood boiling and you- yeah, yeah, I and mean, that's exactly yeah. right.
1: That's it. They, they've got nowhere to t- to take it, you know. So they target whatever they need to target, and it's and as I said. People are in prison for a reason, so they're they quite ninety percent of them are quite violent. You know, they've been violent or, you know, not yeah. I would say probably ninety percent violent. The rest are just you know your robbers and those type of things. But you know, yeah, he was he was he was pretty full on. So I was really grateful in that moment that you know that Jeff was there and
0: Jeff stepped in. Jeff, yeah, he did.
1: He stepped in. You know, and and um, he. He, yeah, he's he sort of saved the day for me, but I was prepared to to I was ready to kiss my bum goodbye. That's for sure, <laughs> very much so. And then, the, oh my God. which is and, and that's the sad thing is because they they it's really hard as a prison officer is that you you when you get to a situation you've got to remember the. The situation that you're going to is already at its peak. That's the that's the reason why there is a situation. It's already at its peak. It is hitting hard. It, the the um, the veracity that is coming from these prisoners. They you know they're worked up already. Their adrenaline's kicking in, and you have seconds to to get to that same peak because your pet. You have to get your adrenaline kicking in because you have. It's it's such a very different um it's very hard to explain you know um so by yeah. the time you've been um warned that something's going on and you've been called to go to that situation um
0: you already know it's hit the fan you you've got to try yeah, you it do out.
1: and you have to be thinking really really clearly like super duper clear. and you have to be thinking okay what am I going to go into how is this going to pan out am I going to go in am I going to come out am I going to go in is someone else going to be dead you know so and that happened you know a lot it did it did happen a lot because as you said it's like this little area and they've you know they that it's got pressure cooker yeah it's amazing so you know and then you've got prisoners who make their own alcohol and then they get pissed and they you know and then you've got drunk prisoners you've got prisoners who've smuggled drugs in so they're high as kites i've had a prisoner who um he was not happy he he bucketed his finger up for some reason and um it, he thought it was taking too long to go and see the orthopedic surgeon so he chopped it off you know <laughs> he was like okay well that's not getting sewn back on is it you know <laughs> it's just like um another you know those type of things you had know, another prisoner who who really did a really good job on trying to kill himself and um but what we didn't realise is that he he secreted razor blades in his arm, you know, and it wouldn't get better. And then it was just like, he came to me one day and I was, he was like, oh, my arm. And he was, he was pretty, we drugged him up as well because he was, had very psychotic behaviour. And um, I was looking at his arm and I was like, what the hell's that? And then it was just realised that it was a razor blade that he'd secreted in his arm, you know. Um, we had, um, uh, we actually had a murder in the prison when I was working there. So um, a prisoner had been told that his his son's molester was in the prison, <gasps> and he. Um, so he managed to uh, make a knife. Find out. Make a knife. Oh, you,
0: you he found
1: out who he he he. he okay. So. He was told who it was, right, how, why, don't know, but he was. He was told who it was. So he found out where he was and this one particular day, um, it was about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, so most prisoners were coming back from their work. Lock-off is 3 o'clock, you know, 3.30, something like that, and most prisoners were coming back from work and this particular prisoner was coming back from the supposed pedophile was coming back from his job. And the father of the child, who supposedly was molested by this guy, um, had made a knife, a very, very sharp knife. And anyway, as the the um, prisoner was walking back to his room, the attacker, he grabbed hold of this prisoner and he stabbed him and he slit his throat. And he slit his throat and was actually severing off the head.
0: Oh my God! By the
1: time, officers, oh my God! <laughs> yeah, by the time the officers got to there, the head was almost severed off. The only thing that was keeping it on was the spinal cord. Um, oh,
0: that's revolting. Yeah.
1: So, um, yeah, and he go, he gave himself up easily. He didn't didn't fight the officers. Didn't nothing like that. Dropped the knife. He was happy. He was dead. Um, but it was found out that he got the wrong person. <gasps> it wasn't the right person. Oh no. Mhm. Mhm. So oh. yeah. So that happened. So, what
0: did he do with the guy that he then found out that was wrong? Um uh,
1: no, he couldn't because by then he'd be he was in solitary. There's no way that they were going to let him out anyway you know so yeah so he yeah he did that so my my girl i worked with at the time shirley she was the first responding officer to the incident and uh you weren't on shift though at this day no i was on the i was actually on the night shift so i wasn't on that that day shift um because in those days we worked 12 hour shifts as well so we yeah so it was seven till seven and seven till seven basically um yeah so Mm -hmm. um yeah so she um her and another guy they were both the first responders so they they had to deal with a lot that was very traumatic obviously
0: Mm. I've lived such a sheltered life
1: (laughs) (laughs) you know because I'm quite happy with my little sheltered life at the moment and that's the thing you know you just what goes on behind these you know these these closed doors, basically. You know, it's it's a whole world in there that's it's just unbelievable. I've been out of the game now what twenty odd years, but mm. you know the processes are, are still the same, and you know the people really don't change that much. You know, generally you will find that it's the son following the father, and you know those the crimes don't change, and and those type of things. So you you still find. Um, you know it it's still pretty much the same and that's the same with you know with Todd i mean he 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 went away for all that time and um i didn't get the same person back so by the time he came back um it was very hard for him to assimilate back into normal life well, it's
0: very common though from what it's, you hear it is very
1: common it's yeah. it's it's very common and it's I think I would like to think that the defence force now have learnt their lesson from that, you know that they, um, you know, I remember going to a meeting just before they all came home, and um, and uh, and it was th- with the psychologist, the army psychologist. So there was all of us wives, you know, mums, what mainly wives and partners, you know, type thing, and they were saying to us, you know, you got to remember, some of these women had kids while their husbands were away and these kids were six months old, you know. These guys had never met their child. These women had been doing it by themselves. Um, a lot of them didn't have family support. They, most of their family was over, east, you know, here in the Eastern States. Um, mm. And, you know, I remember this psychologist turned around and saying to me, uh, saying to us, now, when your husband comes home, You know, um, you need to support him as much as you can. Don't do this. And started raveling off all these things about don't do this, don't do that, la, la, la. And I stood up and I said, how dare you say that to these women? I said, these women have had to struggle with children, with houses, with God knows what. It's okay. It's not the same as fighting a war, but it's our own personal war here. You know, we are in our own war zone of having to deal with by ourselves. Not only that, having to keep up the facade at home, that everything's fantastic when it's all falling apart. And you're saying to us that we have to pat them on the back and say, oh, it'll be okay. I said, that's not right. I said, you look around. A lot of these women have had children by themselves. I said, and, you know, now you're telling them that they have to be mindful of, of them? I said, I'm not I'm not dissing. Yes, they've, what they've been through is very, very stressful. I said, but the same thing applies here at home. It's really stressful. I said, so, you know, what you're saying is not fair. And they were like, oh, oh. I said, so you really have to have take a look at this module of what you're trying to tell people and I'd probably revamp it. And, you know, because we, we didn't know what we were going to get back. Well, you don't know whether you're going to get your husband back whole, half normal, not normal, you don't know what they've seen, they can't tell you what they've seen, Um, you know, you don't know what they've been through. But in saying that, you don't want to bombard them as well. They they walk through the door. Oh, that's right, don't tell them. what was Something along the lines of um, they don't need to know about the petty problems at home or something like that, I don't know, something like that. And I was just like, I said, you guys are just disgusting, you know. You can't. These women are, are here and they've supported their husbands 110% and, you know, you're making it out that what they've done here at home is really nothing, you know. And, um, yeah, so they were like, oh, okay. So I'd like to think that they've changed that with deployment now, you know, when they come back, that there's a... um,
0: Well, it sounds like Todd was probably the
1: first... They were the first round. They were. The first wave, yeah,
0: that went over there. They were the first
1: round, you know, And, and so... Realistically, for five years after that, um, I think we worked it out in five years. We'd only been together 15 months in five years. Wow. Because he was away so much. He was always away. So um, th- that that took its toll on us, on our marriage, um, and took its toll on the kids as well because yeah. they were getting older. They were becoming more independent, and Dad was just like an in and out. That's it that's all they could sort of acknowledge that we won't, not that we won't talk to dad, but let's just not bother asking dad anything because he's not going to be around long enough to follow it through, if you know what I mean. So yeah. it was, it, even when he was home, the kids wouldn't go to him and ask him himself. And, and he was angry as well. He was very distant and very angry. So it was a really, really tough time for us. Um, but we got through it. I mean, we did, Todd, you know. Did the right thing. He went to counselling and you know, and worked through you know some of the stuff that he issues that he had, and um and he's he, it's made him much better and stronger. And you know we we've, we've got a, a good relationship and and um we actually like being around each other now. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's always a good thing in a marriage. Yeah, but it I mean it was as I said it
1: was tough on the kids because they just. You know they they sort of rebelled in in the fact is that they wouldn't tell him anything because they were like, "Well, you're not here." Mackenzie struggled the most she even at a young age, she was four when he left, went away when well, didn't left he went away um and um so even um when she was in primary school, she would say, "Dad abandoned me, he abandoned me oh. and so she always had this really um they've always had this sort of not now but when she was younger very tumultuous relationship very much so um do you think though I mean that
0: would have been very hard on him because he's going away he's doing his job he's mm, fighting for his country he's and he's leaving his babies and his wife at home it was and he's yeah
1: and, but his way of dealing with it he you know, like if they if they fight back or they'd argue with him or say hurtful things to him, you know, go, I don't love you or I don't like you or those type of things, he'd go, I don't care. Instead of instead of acknowledging going, look, uh, I get it and I'm really sad to hear that but I love you, he would go, I don't care. He's, yeah it I, was his way of, also, of, of emotionally not allowing just, yeah he's, he's, disconnecting from exactly so he yeah. yeah so if he yeah. got called away that's not going to that's not going to impact on his way of thinking so which is what had to change I mean that really really had to change a lot I mean Ethan when Todd came home um after being away for so long and he was only six at the time he um <laughs> he went to school and so um i um he'd been away and he, this is so funny i just laugh at this every time and um i ethan went back to school and um he's he his teacher said to him, and, and how, how are you ethan how's it going ethan goes i've got a new dad <laughs> and she was like oh so And so she came up to me and she says, oh, have you remarried? And I went, no, why? She goes, because Ethan says he's got a new dad. And I went, no, it's the same dad. I said, she's been away for a really, really long time. (laughs) Did they
0: know that he was in the Yeah, they did,
1: yeah. And they were like, oh, okay, because obviously I – I didn't, because Ethan went to a special school because he had Asperger's and and oh, yeah. he's got autism and, um, I mean, he's fantastic now. He's 25, works FIFO and, you know, he's he's learned his strengths and his weaknesses and all that. He's an amazing young man. Um, he, um, you know, he, he used to get picked up from home um, in a bus and I used to hate it, even though it was great for him to go to this school because it was, you know, 10 kids in the class two teachers those type of things and it was a special school and but I used to hate him going in this bus because I don't know what you remember as a kid but kids who used to travel in those orange buses were we used to call them window lickers they were the retards and you know people used to all
0: right I never called anyone (laughs) well I'm talking about
1: my day and age that's what we used to do and I used to think oh my no no i think it's pretty much all over the country and so everybody like so in the in the my day when i was growing up anybody who was on an orange bus right was the retards they were the disabled people and um and he used to get picked up in this orange bus i remember the first day he got picked up and and I remember saying, waving goodbye. He was happy to get on the bus. He was like, I'm going on the bus. I'm going to school. I'm really happy. And I sat there and I sobbed. And all I could think about was like, people are going to call my son a retard. That's Aww. that's how I, I thought about it. And I struggled with that for so many months. But he was always such a happy, happy kid. Nothing bothered him. He had that amazing ability, I suppose being Asperger's autistic, whatever you want to call it, they They don't care, they do not care, you know he's got no filter, he says the most inappropriate things um where things that you uh, growing up, I used to have to say, "May, you cannot say that, and he'd go, "Why not?" he'd think it, and he'd say it, and I'd go um, and I tell you a funny story. He was about fourteen and um <laughs> I can't believe I'm going to tell you this. Anyway, he's about 14. They were quiet <laughs> no, no, I know this. I know. But um I I gone out on a girls night out and uh or oh, we gone out with friends, me, Todd and friends and one of my friends hooked up with one of Todd's friends. Anyway, they came back to our house. We all went to bed and that was fine. Not a problem. You know, that's not a problem at all. They're grown ups. Not a problem. And the next morning everybody wakes up and you know we're in the kitchen would you like coffee would you like breakfast blah 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 the gentleman who had hooked up with my friend he'd already gone home and my girlfriend came in you know she came in the bedroom came in and she was like oh you know bit of a hangover yeah 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 and Ethan I can't believe he did a dawn dash after all of that sorry I can't believe the mate did a dawn dash oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah not uncommon and um yeah, so anyway, Ethan comes out of the room and looks at my friend. I won't say her name or anything. And he goes, you had very loud sex last night and I heard it. And I, I looked and I she looked, she went right red, Right, red. And I was like, Ethan. And he was like, it's true and I don't want to hear that again. And I was just, I didn't know. I know she was thinking a, a whole open up and swallow me now. And I'm standing there and I'm just looking and I was just like, I am so. Well, you just dissolved
0: it. I, oh, you didn't dissolve into laughter. You I like, did. I
1: laughed. But I was trying so hard to hold it together. I really was. And I was, I was like, oh, my God. I didn't know where to look. I didn't know. What, and I, I turned around to my friend and I said, I am so, so <laughs> And she looked, she was so good about it. She looked and she looked at Ethan. And she said, I'm really sorry, Ethan. If it happens next time, I promise I'll be quiet. She was so good about it. And I was just like, oh, and she's still to this day, like we have a laugh about it. She goes, remember when Ethan, and I was like, yep, I remember that one. She goes, I will never, ever, ever forget that. And, yeah, so he comes out with things like that. Not now. He's older and he's learnt that that's not the right thing to say. But, yes, he used to come out with some real doozies. So, yeah, so him coming out with strange things when he was little was not unusual. The girls used to cringe, you know, when he used to say things and they used to go, oh, my God, he's so embarrassing. <laughs> but he can't help himself. He just doesn't, you know. So, um, yeah, but he's grown into a gorgeous young man. He's really lovely, very, very nice young man. So I'm very oh, proud of him. So cool. Yeah, so... <laughs> Oh, we get honestly the things that we used to do, and and um, I remember when I when I first started in the prison, I I I was a probationary. As I said, I was a probationary, and I was working in the remand centre. I was doing my probationary with my friend. Her name is Sim, so we were partners, and I got to go and do the what we call the court run. So that was going to pick up the prisoners from the lockup and bringing them back to the remand centre, and I and um Me and my partner Sim, she was as short as what I was, so it was quite funny with us two shorties walking around. And um, so I went to the lockup, um, and we were getting prisoners from the lockup. And what you did is, the prison you take a prisoner out of a cell, and you would pat them down, and you know how you see on TV how they pat them down and all the rest of it. And so you had to do that with each prisoner prior to putting them into the van that took them to the prison. And I was trying to be really meticulous and, and thorough of doing this pat-down and made sure that oh, no. I was doing the right thing. <laughs> and Brad Robinson, I remember this guy's name. His name was Brad Robinson. He was my SO at the time. And um, he was like, you know, make sure you get the cuffs, you you know, make sure you get down, down those legs because they can hide. I was like, yep. Yeah no worries so this prisoner is standing up against the wall his hands as you know see on the tv hands against the wall legs spread and i so i've padded around his collar down the arms cuffs all the padded padded, padded down get down he's all, all he's wearing is like um a, like a, a wind cheetah and tracky pants and sneakers and and we got them to take off their sneakers because we have to check sneakers socks and all the rest of it and um so i'm padding down get there and so I uh, pat around the waist of the pants, right, because you've got to make sure there's nothing secreted in the the waist of the pants. And the, and as I go down to pat down the legs, I um, so I we were taught that you run your hands down the legs, right? So you pull your hands down either side. What I did is that as I pulled my hands down, his tracksuit pants came off oh, down, no! and I'm down. I'm down on the ground like down towards his feet and I pulled it down like because I was padding him down and and they were really loose tracksuit pants and I patting down, and I looked up and his ass is in my face and he's got no jocks on no nothing oh, no. Bare bum, every, and he's completely exposed and I looked and Brad Robinson who was my SO and the cops who were there at the station as well at the lockup they were all laughing and I was like oh my god god and this prisoner's still standing there he didn't say a word not not a word and I've got his bare bum in my face and I so I grabbed his tracksuit pants and I pulled them back up over his waist and everything and I sort of touched him and went thank you very much and i was so embarrassed i just didn't know where to look and they're all laughing their heads off they thought it was hilarious that you know i'd done that and i was i was like i'm not doing another one i'm not i'm not going to do another one <laughs> so i before i even got back to the prison it had already got back to the prison of what i'd done and um yeah
0: as into the inmates uh, to the, or as in, in, you know to the other um, officers
1: yeah so um, i'm sure the prisoner would have told the inmates yeah yeah boss over there yes yeah ed was up my ass you know <laughs> <laughs> like, great. And wanted to see Yeah, the exactly. Sorry. But I was just, I just could not believe I'd done it. I was, I was trying to be really good and really meticulous. But yeah, and, and yeah, they came down. And, and the thing was, he, as I said, he had no drops on, no nothing. He was just there right there in front of me. I was like, oh my God. So it was uh, one of those things that I just had to live with. And it was brought up many a times over my time working in the prison. Oh, actually, the one that, yes. I am I'm the one that did that yeah so yeah so it was quite funny so we had good times as well in the prison because you you um you create a really strong bond with the people that you work with you know because uh what you see and what you do is individual no one out on the outside world who don't who doesn't do that job understands it you know, well,
0: that's understandable, though. It's, I mean, it is such a different world.
1: It is a really, really different world, but that's the same. I've got, I, you know, I've got two worlds. I've got an army world that I I belong to oh, yeah. and yeah. and I used to have a prison officer's world, you know, and so I, I've i lived in the army world now for the past 35 years. So that is – Todd's still active. He's still very active, you know. Now he's, you know, doesn't go away, which is great, But in saying that yourself, that's another thing that you have to learn to um, do again because so used to him not being home, so used to him coming in and then so out, and then they're home and they're not going anywhere. They just go to work day in, day out, and you're like, I don't like this. I've got my own life. I do my own thing. I don't answer to you. I'm used to running the household. I'm used to, I'm used yeah, I don't have to. Yeah, well, that's yeah. the thing. I don't have to tell you what I spend. Not that I've had to tell him what I spend anyway, but, you know, I don't have to explain anything to you, you know. And so that was something that we had to learn again is to, um, you know, live with each other and, and like each other, you know, because lots of marriages fail after certain times. You know, we've, we've had our bad times. We, You know, we've separated when we hit the 20-year mark and that's when sort of the, everything sort of came to a head about what had happened, you know, when he was away and all that kind of stuff. So it had sort of it, it hit this, this point, the kids were teenagers and I felt like I had, you know, four teenagers instead of three and I had no... But
0: I, I think that all relationships have ups and downs. I think that his work probably made extra stress and other aspects of
1: definitely true. and i think the other thing is is that you know i i'm very aware of the tough things that he's been through um i do yeah. and i i and, and you know we, he doesn't tell me he doesn't can't talk about it and all those type of things and i and that's fine i don't ask i've learned not to ask you know i just don't ask anything i just say how's your day gone and he was like yeah it's okay you just don't ask because they can't tell and you
0: hard and that's hard because you wanna kinda of be that unit together and support mm. and be like, Okay, let me help you do whatever and they can't tell
1: you. Now, I think the good thing was is because I had been in the army that I understood the stresses that were already happening anyway. I was very understanding of the, that lifestyle. So I mm. I I know lots of friends of mine who or people I know who married who were civilians and married army, um couldn't handle it. You know, they would get to that stage where, you know, their husbands would go away and they'd be away for months, weeks, you know, months and months at a time and then they get to that point and go, right, this is it, I, I can't do this anymore, you've got to get out of the army. And you're like, hang on a minute, you married him whilst he was already in the army. It's all fun and games to start off with, yeah, like, it's all lovey-dovey, all the way. reality kicks in. And, you know, and that's the thing is that they aren't going to be home. That's their job they go off and do this job that's the job that they chose you know as as the saying goes you chose the army the army didn't choose you so you have to be very aware of you know you can't blame the army for what's going on because you chose that lifestyle and you chose to marry someone who's in that lifestyle
0: what knowing being married to somebody that's um gone on multiple deployments and is in the army and yourself being in the army what do you if you if you had a okay I, I don't live that world so I'm not a part of it what is it that you get very frustrated about with the general population when they have opinions about things or misunderstandings what is it that you would like to be like like to say and say, this is actually what it, the reality is
1: the reality is is that um you are lucky enough to have an opinion because people like my husband make that possible. Yeah. Because I, I remember when Todd was away in Afghanistan, one lady who I thought was my friend, uh, she was sitting there one night and we were having wine and she was mouthing off going, I think this war is disgusting. I think this, I think that. No, nah, no, And, I turned around to her and I said, well, you're damn lucky that you are sitting there to be able to have that opinion that you've just sprouted off because of my husband. Because if it wasn't for him and the other men and women who go into these war zones and fight for the, against these terrorists, I said, you wouldn't be able to have an opinion at all. You wouldn't be sitting there having a wine, you wouldn't be sitting there having a drink, you wouldn't be able to go down to the shops whenever you want. You wouldn't be able to do a lot of things if it wasn't for people like my husband. So, you know what Sorry. What was her response to that? Oh, it was like she she didn't know what to and she's not a very nice person anyway, but you know, she didn't know what to say. And like my other girlfriends who were there, like they were they were appalled obviously at her behaviour. And, um, and I said, so, you know, you're no longer welcome. If you, if that's how you feel, don't, don't even. Was this in
0: your house? Was she doing this in your house?
1: Actually, no, luckily if it wasn't, it wasn't in my house, if it would be in my yeah. house, I would have kicked her out straight away. I would have said to <laughs> yeah. her, F off, go on, off you on your bike. Yeah, see you later Yeah, on your yeah bike. exactly. So, um, yeah, and she was, she was just one of those people. And yeah, she was just a fruit leaf. So, um, and that's what I say to people, you, don't say and go, oh, Defence Force, you know, we shouldn't be going in to fight these wars. We shouldn't be doing this. We shouldn't be doing that. Well, sit back and have a really good think about that because, you know, the people before us, like the Anzacs and all the rest of it, from World War One, World War Two, you know, they did it for a reason. It wasn't because they really wanted to go off and get killed. They did it so they had I, freedom.
0: I was... um. Because of Corona, we did the um, driveway door service, and I was so annoyed that I was very pleased that there was a fair few people out. But I judged the houses that weren't standing out there at their driveways.
1: Yeah, you do, don't you? You do look at it and you just think, you know, that's just disgraceful. Disgraceful. It is, yeah, Yeah. because you do. You look back and and um, I think, you know. I think the thing is now that people have gone through corona because this has hit hard in the country and it has and it's stopped us all in our tracks and this is a virus so imagine just imagine that 10 times and that's a war where people can invade your not just a virus where you go and you know you can die in hospital unfortunately because you have caught this horrible virus but imagine other people from other countries invading your country and killing you, physically killing mm. you, shooting you dead. You know, because um, you failed. You 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 haven't you don't have a defence. You know, you haven't got a defence force, or you've sat there and spread it off and gone, oh no, they won't do that. Many wars, you know, have been started by you know arguments and things like that, and you know, and to sit there and then go. It's like, like America complaining about Donald Trump, who I just think is the most useless person in the world. You know, don't complain about him because if you didn't vote, then it's your problem that you've got him as a president.
0: I think I think a lot of the time, if you don't agree with the war, you should still support the soldiers and the exactly. troops because because
1: half the time they don't agree with the war either.
0: Well, not only that, they don't have a choice whether or no. not they're going where they're going, so support them. Yeah. You don't have to, you
1: know. Yeah, you don't have to support the cause, but you can support them, you know, mm. and that's the thing is that, and that's what a lot of people forget is, yes, uh, you know, soldiers don't say it, but, you know, you go in there and you just think, oh, God. But they're not supporting, they're not going to war because they want to. They're going it to, to fight for freedom to be able to have that and for, you know, queen and country, so that their kids and their grandkids can grow up having have a free, have, have a free Yeah, meal. exactly. And that's that's the sad part when people don't support these veterans and, and things like that. And and I think that's that's the confusion. And it's getting lost, I think, as well, as time goes by. Um I don't think it's um I don't think they realise that a lot of stuff is still going on in the world that our soldiers are very involved with. Um, It's just not advertised anymore. It's not as in your face as what Afghan was and Iraq and, you know, all those type of things, you know. It's still Mm. happening though. We still have soldiers who get deployed all the time. It's just not advertised.
0: Is there a way that you know that people could support, like is there some foundation or is there some, like something that you, like the general population, can support the troops more. Is there any way um,
1: that we can do? That? I don't look. I think it's it's. Um, I don't. There's no. There's no. Um, you know, organisation that you know for that type of thing. Because when you're a, when you're currently serving, you do have that support. You do. I'm um, I'm lucky enough to also say that both of my daughters are in the army and yeah. um which was really strange for us because um my youngest daughter in first she was the one that was like I'm going to join the army and and I was like oh that's great you know I, I was I was just so so proud like that she chose to do that and she loves being in the army she loves the army lifestyle she loves it um you know she's doing a bit of a job change thing at the moment so um, which is fine because you don't always, you know, the job that you go into is not always the one that you want to stay in, so which is fine. But she loves the overall lifestyle of the Army. She, yeah, so very lucky. And and it was really funny because when Mackenzie joined um, Madison, my our eldest daughter, she, it was only when we went to Mackenzie's March Out Parade um, at Kapuka. Um, so we went as a family and, um, Madison, we were at Melbourne Airport coming home, that going back to Perth, and um, Madison turns to me and she goes, "I'm joining the army," and I was like, I "Beg your pardon," and <laughs> she was the last person that I expected to join the <laughs> army because she was all about her hair and her makeup and you know all. Did she this... tell you before she enlisted? Like this... <laughs> she was literally. I'm, I'm not exaggerating. She was literally. Um, sorry, Oscar's barking again.
0: That's okay. Um, benefits of Corona. Yeah. Everyone's at
1: home. Um she was literally um we we had driven from Wagga Wagga back down to Melbourne and we were we dropped the car off, we were at the airport, ready to jump on the plane. Oh Todd's just got home. And um she literally was on the phone, on her phone, making an appointment at recruiting to join the army. And wow. and she said to me then, she goes, I'm joining the army. I said, What? I was like, oh. And she, she said, uh, yep, I'm joining the Army. And I, Todd and I were just so stunned. She literally went in, I think, a week later to do her interview with Army. She went in a week after that to do her aptitude test. And then a week later, she did her physical. That was in the February. She was in the Army by the June. That's how wow. she was really quick, really, really quick. She was put in a resignation at work, done, dusted. And she loves it. She loves being in the army. Oh, good. Yeah. I'm glad. Yeah, so well, really good.
0: I can hear that Todd's home. He has
1: arrived home, yes. The
0: man of mystery. <laughs> he, he does exist.
1: He does exist.
0: <laughs> we we do laugh about this because I've well, actually never met Todd. So.
1: Did you hear him? No, I don't. <laughs> Yeah. Yes. I oh know. Well, I actually got to see Andrew's head. So there you go. When you're trying to fix the mic, I was like, "Oh, he's real. He's real." So um, yeah, yeah. So
0: my tech support. Tech
1: support. Yeah, and I'm tech savvy. Remember that. let <laughs> so going go, right, no, well, when,
0: <laughs> when you're in Melbourne, I hope um, you know, I wasn't too. Thanks for taking a moment to listen, everyone. We hope this episode inspired you as much as it did us. If you know somebody who also needs a little inspiration, then please share this podcast with them. Also, don't forget to subscribe on your fave podcast app and rate and review us because that helps inspire us to keep making them.